Hi, welcome to The Landscape, a Cranes Cleveland podcast. I'm Dan Paletta. Glad you can join us. A few weeks ago in The Landscape, we were joined by Ray Leach, the CEO of Jumpstart, the nonprofit organization here in Northeast Ohio that helps budding entrepreneurs. Today, we talked to a gentleman who teaches the next generation of entrepreneurs. It is Michael Goldberg. He's an associate professor of design and innovation at the Weatherhead School of Management at Case Western Reserve University. He is also the inaugural executive director of the Veal Institute for Entrepreneurship at Case Western Reserve University. He joins us today for The Landscape. Michael, thanks for being with us today. Great, Dan. It's great to be with you. Thanks for having me. Let's start out by talking about who takes your classes. Is it more people, for example, who would say, well, I, I have a, a skill in computer design, but I need to learn the business aspects so I can have my own business? Or is it young people who want to be entrepreneurs and fi- will figure out their product or service later? You know, it's a good question in terms of our uh, our customer base of, of entrepreneurship students. And in many ways, actually, it's evolved over the past 10 years that I've been teaching entrepreneurship. It, entrepreneurship's a hot topic. Um, and, and in fact, many of our students, whether they're undergraduates at Case Western Reserve University or graduate students, aren't necessarily um, have a burning idea that they're trying to turn into a startup. I think, frankly, many of them are going into more traditional companies and industries. But I think there's a recognition that the sort of journey uh, to, to study startups and entrepreneurial path and, and raising capital and, and putting ideas through customer discovery can have applications well outside of, of forming a company. So we have an interesting mix of, of undergraduate, whether it be CS majors, engineers, folks studying uh, at the business school, but also nurses, uh, folks in arts and sciences. So I've been really pleased by the breadth of, um, of backgrounds that we have. Um, and I think as I, as I keep up with students sort of after graduation, it's always interesting to me kind of if and when they decide to take the leap into starting something, because usually that isn't something that they do right out of school. Do you hear from a lot of your former students about projects they've started? Yeah, it's fun keeping in touch. I mean, social media for better or for worse is a great way uh, to sort of track folks' journeys. And, you know, oftentimes when I, when I engage with students, they are talking about something that they... Um, either sort of worked on back when we were together or insights that they got um, from meeting entrepreneurs. I'm, I, I tend to have a lot of guest speakers um, in our class, including uh, Ray Leach and others from Jumpstart that are here in Northeast Ohio that have sort of either been on the entrepreneurial journey or helped others a- along the road. So, um, yeah, it's great hearing from students about what they're up to and, you know, whether they've tried something. And, and I think the reality, as we know, in the entrepreneurship space is many of them aren't successful, at least with that, that first venture. So it's, it's, it's always good to hear from folks and, and what they've ultimately decided to do with, with what they've learned in the classroom. When you do have a student at the Veal Institute who might have an idea that looks like it could be something that might really work, is there a mechanism to provide support for those students to help get things off the ground? Or is that something that has to come on their own later? No, I mean, I think uh, Northeast Ohio and, and, and folks on our campus at, at Case Western Reserve are really blessed with um, a robust support network, always trying to make it uh, more robust and, and, and easier for folks to engage. But yeah, I mean, whether you're a Case Western Reserve University student, whether you're a community member, um, you know, our, our ecosystem here in Northeast Ohio is really... Um, sort of blessed to have the support from um, government and and our Ohio Third Frontier program, which is a a program that was started through the state of Ohio over a decade ago, is really a national and international model for um, state support of of commercialization activity and entrepreneurship. So there's a number of programs 
um, that uh, of which Jumpstart helps administer quite a few that that state support has been in support, been important. Um, philanthropy and um, you know I know you had Andre on from the Cleveland Orchestra who was talking about the role of philanthropy in, in, in a recent podcast. I mean, we are blessed with foundations like the Cleveland Foundation and others that um, not only support important things like the arts and, and um, social services, but growingly have been active in economic development and entrepreneurship. So our fund for the economic future, um, among others, have, have played a role there. And then the private sector. So you've got a fairly robust ecosystem of support and, and where I think it differs from um, a San Francisco or Silicon Valley, where at this stage, it's really when you're a startup at whether you're at Stanford or San Francisco sort of pitching for support, it's it's typically a, a private transaction between an investor and, and a startup. And in a place like Cleveland or in Ohio, you, you can find support um, for, uh, for entrepreneurship coming from other places, including government. And that's something that you don't necessarily see in a more well-formed ecosystem like, like Silicon Valley. One of the things young entrepreneurs have been doing is crowdfunding to get their businesses off the ground. You had the people on, I joined you in the classroom from Saucy Brew Works talking about something I'd never heard of, which was Start Engine. Can you talk about that for a moment? Because it's an interesting concept of gaining support. Yeah, crowdfunding and um, its evolution has been fascinating. I mean, some folks have talked about kind of the democratization of um, of early stage you know, venture capital. Um, Brent Zimmerman, who's a former as a Weatherhead alum, um, and as you mentioned, is, is the CEO of, of Saucy Brew Works, um, went out to the markets on Start Engine, which is one of these um, kind of emerging platforms for equity-based crowdfunding, and was able to raise uh, a, a significant amount of money to expand their business um, via one of these platforms. Um, Actually, it was a fun sort of during the pandemic when when um, most of my students were remote, we did a fun thing with Brent where we delivered pizzas, um, which are awesome, um, to our students as they sort of rolled their sleeves up around crowdfunding. Um, so there are other platforms out there that, that listeners may be familiar with, um, such as uh, Indiegogo or Kickstarter. A lot of those started as uh, really great sales platforms, um, less so about raising um, equity capital. And again, for folks that aren't as familiar with the fundraising journey, the idea of raising equity or selling shares of your company. So Brent, in, in the case of Saucy Brewers, is actually selling shares of Saucy to shareholders. So you're truly an investor, much like someone might buy a, a, a share of stock on a, on a publicly traded exchange. Platforms like Kickstarter, Indiegogo, are, are, are you're not, you're buying the product, but you're not necessarily getting shares of the company. So it's been very interesting to see the evolution of, of um, equity-based crowdfunding, which again is this different way, a more um, uh, different way to kind of broaden the base of folks that are investing in in early stage companies in this asset class, which sort of for before that was more limited to accredited investors or sort of more wealthy investors um, that were the more traditional angel or venture capital investors. What do you tell your students about the relationship of social media to entrepreneurship? I know that it seems like every company has a Facebook account and everybody's on Twitter and everybody's on Instagram, but is there a way to target it better to make sure it's not just a lot of noise? <laughs> social media conundrum. I mean, embracing uh, opportunities on social media. And, you know, it's interesting, um, social media in all of its forms, whether it's, um, you know, let's call it 
business focused social media like LinkedIn. And, you know, we really uh, at, at Case Western Reserve and I, I, I use it myself all the time. I mean, the ability to um, broaden your connectivity with alums, potential customer base using a tool like LinkedIn, which, you know, when I talk to my kids about using LinkedIn, they sort of smirk. It's like, yeah, is that even social media? Well, yeah, it is. <laughs> it is a social media platform that I think can can have um, real impact. And then obviously these sort of emerging, whether it's sort of Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, um, short video, um, you know, watching young people uh, communicate uh, effective messages in, you know, in the case of something like a short video on TikTok or Instagram, um, in a way that really packs a punch because the attention span of consumers and viewers and all of us is 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 uh, short and shrinking. So I'm really, I've been really excited about what I've seen with the way that whether it's my students or the young people are using social media to um, to get their message out about their product or even test new markets as a way, you know, using, using different platforms is pretty exciting. Professor Michael Goldberg joins us on the landscape of Crane's Cleveland podcast. I'm Dan Folletta. We're talking about the world of entrepreneurship and education and how the two tie together. Michael, what lessons did we learned during this last year that we're going to be taking going forward in the world of business that we discovered during COVID that are things that, that will can probably continue to apply as we hopefully move into a more normalized era? Sure. Um, in the education space where uh, where I live and is, is my day job. Um, I mean, obviously, whether it's Case Western Reserve or other universities or high school, I mean, the um, rapid adoption of, of, of online learning. Um, interestingly, I had had the experience and I, I guess somewhat fortunate uh, before a lot of my colleagues to, to put a course online um, at Case Western Reserve. We're partnered with Coursera. So I put um, what's called a, a MOOC, a massive open online course on the Coursera platform um, in 2014. And so I learned kind of early on the power of online learning. Um, the course that I teach called Beyond Silicon Valley, which has had um, over 175,000 participants from 190 countries, uh, showed me sort of firsthand the ability to connect with a global marketplace in this case, sort of, of students, um, you know, via this platform. So when the pandemic hit and, you know, I had to adopt, you know, quickly as did the rest of the world sort of move our courses online, I, I was probably a bit better positioned than some of my colleagues, A, because I'd worked in some of these, these platforms before. B, um, I had been bringing in guest speakers via recently Skype and, and more recently Zoom into my classroom. And I think, you know, for a university like Case Western Reserve, but I think this this holds true for high school educators, other university educators, and even just sort of business people. I mean, the ability to, to use platforms to bring folks that don't sit in Northeast Ohio into conversations um, remotely. I mean, in many ways, actually scheduling was so much easier uh, to bring folks in, we, we have a speaker series, which we had launched at the university before the pandemic um, and actually had made a commitment to, to live stream them at that point on Facebook Live. Um, when the pandemic hit we, and everything was online, we were able to get some awesome speakers um, from around the world. I mean, sometimes they were sitting right here in Northeast Ohio and we'd be joining, you know, five miles away via Zoom, but other times they would be on the coast or 
based overseas. So I think that that is here to stay. Um, you know, we have a really um, active and, and uh, alumni base around the world. And like we found um, some of these remote sessions were awesome ways to, to keep our alumni engaged. So, you know, I expect a lot of hybrid um, work going forward. And, you know, for any of us, and I know there's many listeners that whether you were sort of putting on a meeting during, during Zoom or teaching in class, like, you know, when, when you have some of your audience in person or some of your, you know, colleagues in person and some via Zoom, there's a little bit of an art to like juggling the, oh, I see a hand raised on Zoom versus somebody raising their real hand when they're sitting in a, in a classroom or, or a conference room with us. So, but I think that's there to stay. And, you know, I think the other piece, and I think we all are seeing this in various ways is the flexibility and the productivity that happened during the pandemic. So, um, you know, employers that want to engage and keep top talent are going to need to show flexibility because the workforce, which is, highly in demand and, you know, there is, there are shortages that are popping up in all sorts of ways are going to demand more flexibility. So I think, you know, there's always going to be something about being together and I love travel. I love international travel, but um, we're going to have to use these tools as a way to accommodate talent. You know, how do we, how do we continue to use video conferencing, other kinds of conferencing, um, to engage a workforce that isn't necessarily going to be in person going forward. It's an interesting question, the flexibility one. You hear both sides. You hear people who are, you know, business owners saying, I want my employees back because I, you know, I want to be able to keep an eye on them from nine to five. On the other hand, people are saying, I was actually doing more work at home. I was getting up at four o'clock in the morning sometimes and sending emails that they would not have done two years ago because they would just done that when they went to work. So it'll be interesting to see what businesses decide to do in terms of welcoming people back and what kind of flexibility they'll offer them. No, absolutely. I mean, I think we're starting to see companies begin to to communicate to their employees about what their expectations are and where there is flexibility. And, you know, anecdotally, I'm already hearing it um, even from students that are sort of entering the workforce, like the importance of that flexibility and work-life balance. And um, obviously for working parents or folks, you know, with, with uh, you know, elderly parents, like, I think it'll be very interesting on the talent retention and acquisition side, how this continues to evolve, because in in a tight labor market, there's a lot of power that exists within, um, you know, again, whether it's my students that are entering the workforce or sort of others. So I think, I think it'll be very interesting as, as, as folks sort of return to the office, what that looks like going forward. Let's talk for a moment about Beyond Silicon Valley, this course that you teach, Growing Entrepreneurship and Transitioning Economies. It grew in part out of some time you spent in Hanoi. Did I mention that correctly? What was that all about? So I, um, I don't know if it was a midlife crisis, but maybe. Uh, sort of in my early 40s, um, I applied for and was fortunate to receive a Fulbright um, fellowship to teach entrepreneurship in Hanoi. I moved my family out of their, uh, moved the kids out of, Cleveland, we kept our house, but we put them in an international school and I taught um, entrepreneurship at a business school in Hanoi. And and one of the things that came out of that experience, as you referenced, was a workshop that I that I put on for um, basically this Vietnamese government ministry. Their Ministry of Science and Technology has a a 
group focused on kind of entrepreneurship and they asked me to do a course about how Vietnam could become more like Silicon Valley. And, and I actually, because, because of the role the government played there and, and also the role that donors, I mean, in Cleveland, as I referenced before, it's more sort of traditional foundations or philanthropy in there. It's, it's foreign government. But I, I told the folks, I was like, you guys don't look as much like Silicon Valley as you actually look like my home city of Cleveland. And we used um, Skype at, at that point in 2012, where we, we had a bunch of folks from Jumpstart, the Third Frontier, Case Western Reserve University sort of sharing our experience and that online sort of Skype workshop became the basis of this course. It received the support from the Brittany Morgan Foundation here in Cleveland. And it's been interesting to share our journey in Cleveland. And, you know, it's it's very much of a, of a journey that continues and it's not easy to support the growth of entrepreneurship um, here or certainly many places outside of Silicon Valley. But what we found was, and this I think surprised us, was how much the Cleveland story resonated in parts of the world. I mean, I've done a ton of travel kind of before the pandemic, sort of sharing our story in Cleveland and places as ranging from, you know, Zambia and Zimbabwe and, and Namibia and Southern Africa to Kosovo and Slovenia and um, Netherlands, France, Indonesia, Philippines. Um, we've had some really interesting dialogue about how our Cleveland experience and the struggle that we've had here to support the growth of entrepreneurship, how those lessons might apply to other parts of the world. So it's been, it's been pretty fascinating and a lot of fun. You mentioned that, that in these transforming economies, these budding entrepreneurs often face challenges that you might not face if you were in Silicon Valley. What kind of things are, are they up against or what the things do they have to overcome to, to be successful? So access to capital is one um, challenge that I think whether you're in Cleveland or Namibia or Kosovo, I mean, you know, what Silicon Valley has now, and this is over a long period of time, is they have this, for them, wonderful combination of, of capital and talent. So let's let's talk about pre-pandemic, because I think there's a lot that's actually changing around investors and their willingness to invest in entrepreneurs that aren't sitting at their local coffee shop or at an office down the street. But um, a lot of, of the Silicon Valley success story has been attracting talent and then um, growing pools of capital sort of around that talent. So that, I think that has been an ongoing challenge for communities. This talent question is, I think is a really interesting one because, um, and we've seen it in Northeast Ohio. I mean, we've seen Clevelanders, you know, leave here in search of capital. I mean, we have four awesome alums from Case Western Reserve University. We started uh, a company called Scout RFP, which was sold about a year and a half ago to, to Workday for over $600 million. I mean, they they started their first company actually while they were students at Case and then eventually made the decision to move out to Silicon Valley because that's where the talent to build their company was and that's where the capital was. So I think there may be some interesting changes in the dynamic. I think you're starting to see people, even during the pandemic, who could work from anywhere, whether it was remote for sort of the Twitters or the Facebooks of the world. But even I, I think this premise that like you can start a company successfully and access capital in a place like Cleveland is being put to the test a bit more because rents and cost of doing business in places like San Francisco has gotten so challenging that this may be a moment for the Clevelands of the world to 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 grow. Um, we're not there yet. And, you know, San Francisco or Seattle or um, remain I think much more dynamic hubs. And part of this is because of the talent and, and capital mix. But 
things could be changing in the future. So I'll be, I'll be curious to see how it evolves for a place like Cleveland. You spent some time working for America Online and helping to develop Asian markets. Um, I'm curious, we do business one way in the United States. Were there cultural differences you had to learn when you did business in other places, in particular in Asia, when you were working in China, um, that you had to figure out they do it this way? That's not the way we do it. I need to absorb that. Sure. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. You know, for for listeners to your podcast, perhaps your demographic remembers AOL. When I teach at, uh, at Case now, and I'm like introducing myself, I'm like, I work for a company called AOL. How many of you have heard of it? You know, so like, well, you're, maybe your parents are <laughs> um, along the way. So it was interesting being part of sort of that first internet wave. I, I joined AOL um, after graduate school. And, you know, as you referenced, I did a lot of work in, in Asian markets. You know, it was interesting, the China market, um, when I was doing work there, um, like much of the internet was still kind of early, was evolving. Um it, it is. It has been interesting. I've actually been emailing with a lot of my old AOL colleagues. Um, there was a number of, of articles recently about Apple and their work in China and um, how what they needed to do in order to get access to the China market in terms of on the government side of things. And you know, it, it is in a market like China, it is littered with multinationals that have sort of struggled to kind of figure out how to effectively engage the government and then sort of what are the things that you give up along the way in terms of privacy and locating servers. So it um, these markets are extremely attractive to U.S. companies. It is very challenging to kind of navigate and, and make inroads. I think a lot, whether it's China or just sort of doing international business, more broadly speaking, you know, these having trusted partners. Um, one of the things we struggled with at AOL, and this isn't just us, but when you set up a joint venture and, and the joint venture we had set up was with, uh, the company was originally called Legend, they're now called Lenovo, which is you know, a well-known PC manufacturer. Like, how do you align in a joint venture your interest with the interest of your partner, knowing that your company's interest may not always be totally aligned with joint ventures? So joint ventures, which is a, which is a, is a path that many people have entered markets like China around for a long time are very tricky to set up, partly because of the alignment. But um, some of it, I think, just comes down to sort of building strong relationships and listening to local market conditions and also realizing that things are different <laughs> in every market. And, and um, you know, oftentimes what's worked in the U.S. doesn't work particularly well in a market like China. Thanks so much for joining us today. It's been a great pleasure talking about entrepreneurship and the work that you've done over the years. Good luck in the fall semester. Hopefully everything gets back to normal when we get back to school. Great. No, it's it's wonderful to be there. I love what you guys are doing with the podcast. And uh, yeah, looking forward to being back in the classroom with, with live students as well. Michael Goldberg has joined us for The Landscape. You can find out more about Michael by visiting his website. We'll have information up on ours. The Landscape is produced by Kobe Smith. I'm Dan Paletta. Again, thanks for joining us and we'll talk again soon.